Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matt Litson, and I serve as one of the pastoral interns here. I just want to extend my welcome to our church for this Good Friday service, whether you're here in the sanctuary or joining us online. Our next reading comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, uh, beginning in chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into, into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look upon your Son now on the cross, as he hangs marred beyond all recognition, Lord, we pray for the, for the ability to, to see him even now. Would your Spirit be present among us? Would, would he stir up our hearts to see Jesus? And Lord, would we better understand your love for us in light of this dark, this gruesome tragedy? We ask this in, in Christ's name. Amen. 
So crucifixion is one of the most gruesome and grotesque means of ending life that's ever been imagined. It is unbelievably painful, dehumanizing, and degrading. In fact, that's the whole point of it. It, Over the last few decades, if you look at some of the medical journals that have been published, they've actually taken and observed the crucifixion from a medical perspective. You read these articles and you find uh, how exactly crucifixion drains the life slowly out of its unlucky victims how the nails sever median nerves, and how the ribcage presses in on the lungs and slowly causes the person to suffocate. I actually find that it's interesting, though, that in the Gospel of Luke, the author uh, that bears his name, Luke, he's a physician himself. And witnessing the crucifixion, he doesn't choose to write about Jesus' death from a medical point of view. In fact, we, we actually find that his attention is elsewhere. He's not looking at Jesus as a patient, but rather he's looking at something else entirely. Like, what is Luke spending his energy writing about? Right? Rather than looking at Jesus on the cross and what he's experiencing, Luke is actually recording what's taking place around Jesus. He's taking notes of the location and the setting. He's writing down who is there witnessing what is happening. And he's recording all of these interactions that people are having with Jesus. And this should tip us off to something. At the core of Christianity, at the heart of Christian belief, is this event, the death of Christ. But just as important as the crucifixion is our response to it. Luke is telling us that the crucifixion is an unavoidably relational event that demands a response from all who observe it. Not just the people who were there 2,000 years ago, but for those of us who hear it and even observe it in the words of Scripture. In the passage that we just read, Luke is recording all the different interactions that Jesus is having with people as he hangs from that tree on Skull Hill. He's interacting with religious leaders, with soldiers, with fellow executees, with with an ongoing observing crowd. And all of them have more or less the same interaction with Jesus. All of them, that is, except one, this criminal hanging beside him on the cross. And in Luke's account of the gospel, he only records Jesus' conversation uh, from the cross. And and Jesus is only talking to two people from the cross. He's talking to his father in heaven, and he's talking to this crook beside him. So we should be asking ourselves, what is it about this criminal that merits a response from Jesus? Above all the other voices calling at Jesus, vying for his attention, calling for Jesus to reply to them, why does Jesus look on this criminal and give him a response? I believe that it's this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and the criminal at the cross that's at the heart of the Christian faith. And I want to suggest to you that this afternoon that that if we understand what's taking place in this conversation, that we'll understand what Christianity is all about, that as we seek to understand this, this, this interaction, that we'll find hope that restores our souls. And so this conversation, which Luke records for us in verses 39 through 43, uh, contains two parts to it, two elements that I want us to examine during our time together. The first thing I want us to to look at is the realization of the criminal. And secondly, I want us to look at the response of the king. So the criminal's realization and the king's response. So first, let's look at the criminal's realization. Why does Jesus respond to this person out of all the other people who who are witnessing Jesus' death? What is it about this criminal that gets Jesus to talk back to him? 
But what, what I want to suggest is that this passage show, shows us that this criminal realizes something that everyone else in our passage misses. This criminal understands something that everyone else fails to comprehend. So what's his realization? What does this person see that, that, the, that everyone else misses? What I want to show you that his realization actually comes to him in, in three parts. And I think it comes to us in more or less the same way as well. See, this criminal, he, he sees what no one else sees. He feels what no one else feels. And then he says what no one else says. So notice, firstly, this criminal sees what no one else sees. And that is that Jesus really is a king. That Jesus really is a king. In the midst of, of all the blood and the gore, of all the, the mocking and the jeering, of all the, the mourning and the tears, no one else sees what's going on except this criminal. In fact, nobody up to this point in the story has really seen Jesus for who he actually is. Not the Pharisees who represent the religious establishment, not the Sadducees who are the ones with privilege, not Judas the nationalist, not Pilate the opportunist, not Herod the secularist, not even the crowd or the soldiers see Jesus for who he really is. Nobody sees Jesus except this criminal. And sure, there's a sign above Jesus' head that says he's a king, but everybody knows that those words are actually a joke. Right? For, for the Jew and for the Roman, you don't find kings on crosses. In the Jewish imagination, hanging on a tree, dying on a tree, is a sign that you are under a curse, that, that God is, is pushing you out, that, that you are utterly forsaken, that you are totally depraved. And for the Roman, crucifixion is a slave's death where those who are not worthy of being remembered are further dehumanized as they're erased from existence, you wouldn't find a king on a cross, much less even attending a crucifixion. In other words, kings don't hang on crosses. For those who are on the margins of society because of social circumstances, injustice, gross sin, or deep shame, kings don't come for you. God doesn't come for you. Nobody comes for you. No one, that is, except Jesus. And while we're not sure how he gets it, this criminal on the cross sees something that no one else sees, that Jesus really is a king, that those words hanging above Christ are not a joke, it's, it's reality. That Jesus is more than the people who put him up there have made him out to be. And for us today, when it comes to understanding the cross and what happened on this Friday 2,000 years ago, we need to see what this criminal saw, that Jesus is more than just a man. He is God in the flesh. And even though he hangs on this tree with much of that flesh ripped away, it doesn't make his divinity any less true. And it should tell us that the message of the cross is more than just a deep tragedy that tells us that this world is one that's full of injustice. The cross is an injustice, but it's more than that. The cross tells us that, that it's more than just an example of sacrificial love. It is, but it's much more than that. The cross is God showing up in the dark, not just above the darkness giving judgment, but in the darkness bearing judgment. That the cross is God bearing the full weight of, of, of wrath against sin for us in our place. And doesn't this track with everything that Jesus said in his earthly life and ministry? Right? 
This is why the, the Jews and the Romans miss it entirely. They don't, they don't have a category for God showing up in places like this, but it's precisely because of places like this that Jesus came. You remember the words of Jesus when he says, you don't find doctors among the healthy, right? It, it, it's the sick who need a doctor. It's those walking in darkness that need a great light. It, it's those who are lost who need found. It's those who are captive to sin that need a ransom. And, and more than a ransom, they need a king. And this is what this criminal sees. He sees Jesus, the king, come for him. That's what he sees. He sees what no one else sees. But notice that, that his seeing moves him to something else, that his seeing moves to feeling, that this criminal not only sees what no one else sees, but he feels what no one else feels. And that is that he is guilty and deserving of judgment. He's guilty and deserving of judgment. Everyone else around the cross presumes that they are the innocent ones and that Jesus is guilty. The religious leaders presume that they're in the right for they've snuffed out blasphemy and they've avoided Roman intervention just in time for the feast. The soldiers around the cross think that they're innocent, thinking that they're only doing their duty. Even the other criminal on the cross thinks he's innocent. He's shouting at Jesus to get them both down from the cross. But the criminal who sees, he looks around and he knows in his gut that something is off. That there's only one innocent person in this whole bunch. And it's not the religious leaders, it's not the, the soldiers, it's not the crowd, it's not even himself. But it's Jesus. There's only one innocent person in this whole lot. And the one person who has no business being strung up is hanging there alongside him. And, and you see the criminal even come to Jesus' Jesus's defense in verse 40. He, he rebukes his, his fellow executee and he says, do you not fear God? See, you and I, we're up here because we deserve it. But if you look at this person, you, you can see, you can know that he has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. He doesn't see any guilt in Jesus. And in fact, as he stares at the innocence, at the innocence of Christ, he begins to feel in himself more acutely his own unworthiness and sin. And he looks as he, as he stares at the king on the cross. He notices that the wounds of Christ are actually his wounds. The wounds that, that he now bears himself on the cross and, and the wounds that, he, that this criminal inflicted on other people during his life, the, the very wounds that led him to being strung up on the cross himself, he stares at the wounds of Christ and he recognizes that Christ is bearing all the wounds of evil and injustice throughout history, past, present, and future. That in Jesus Christ, he's bearing the wounds of every injustice. He's, he's bearing the marks of, of every act of ruining greed. He, he bears the wounds of every murder victim. He bears the, the wounds of every instance of infidelity, of every harsh and untrue word, of every abused child of every self-destructive thought. See, the criminal sees his own wounds and Christ's wounds, and he realizes that his punishment is just. And when it comes to us today, as we seek to understand the cross, we need to see not only what the criminal saw, but we also need to feel what this criminal felt. In other words, we need to see Jesus for who he really is, but we need to see ourselves for who we really are that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath, that all of us, are, are, by our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we stand justly deserving God's wrath, 
that God is holy, just, and innocent, and that we are not. That we are not. That all of us have contributed to the fracturing and disintegration of the world. And, and we know this on one level, right? That, that, that this world, that there's something wrong with it that needs mending. Don't our, don't our news feeds shout at us that there's something wrong with the world? Not just at the level of mass shootings or human trafficking or racism, but also in those areas in our own hearts that, that no one sees, that, that we would even say are, you know, dare we say it, are acceptable, right? Those white lies that we tell to avoid conflict, uh, the, the tests that we cheat on to look good for, on, our, on our resumes or even to appease parents, uh, those ways that we put other people down to maintain our own reputation, even the contempt we harbor for people who have different political affiliations or different lifestyles than we do? Don't we see how, how every sin from its, least, uh, from its least manifestation to its greatest, how all of them rip apart the fabric of our world, how they alienate us from, from God and from one another, and how these things create such an irreparable world that we cannot mend this fabric on our own? And because God made this world, because he loves it, because he, he cherishes and treasures this creation so deeply that he, that he won't allow sin, even in its most subtle forms, to go unchecked. He won't allow even the, the smallest rip in the fabric of his world go unmended and unrepaired. And, and, and do you see how you and I each contribute to the, to the rending of that fabric? Do you see how, how God in his, in his love can't let those things go unpunished or unseen? And we don't, in fact, we don't want him to. We, we want those things that have happened to us and even those things that, 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 that we've done to others, we want to see those things made right. And so God does that on the cross. The cross is God's answer to how he destroys sin without destroying the sinner, right? How he does away with sin without also doing away with us. And unless we see the cross in those terms as God doing business with your sin and with mine, Easter will not make sense to you. The, the cross will not, be good, will not be good news for you unless you see what the thief sees and feel what the thief feels. That this cross is not just some abstract reality, but it's God doing business with you. Of God destroying your sin without destroying you. And unless you see your wounds in Christ's wounds, you will never experience what our assurance of pardon told us that, that by Christ's wounds we're healed. That unless you see your wounds in Christ's wounds, you won't experience the healing that Christ promises us by his death. And so that's what the criminal feels. Seeing Christ's innocence makes him feel more acutely his own sin and unworthiness. And, and in light of those two realities of who he is and, and of who Jesus is, there's only one thing that he can do. And this leads him to the third part of his realization that this criminal then says what no one else says. He says what no one else says. Do you see his response in verse 42? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Remember me. See, everyone else is, is shouting something different at Jesus, but it's all the same thing. The religious leaders are, are, are scoffing him. Save yourself. The soldiers around the cross are mocking him. Save yourself. The other criminal on the cross is railing at him. Save yourself, and while you're at it, save me too. But you notice what this thief says? 
He doesn't ask to, to for, he doesn't ask Jesus to save himself. He doesn't ask to come down off the cross. He he instead says to Jesus, "Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me." This thief recognizes that at this moment, the one who seems the most powerless is in fact the most powerful. And fully exposed and nowhere else to turn, this thief looks to Jesus and asks to, to, be, to be part of his kingdom, only, even if, even if his, his only presence in that kingdom is in the king's memory. See, this should be instructive for us, because not only are each one of us sinners and standing under the, 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 the deserved punishment of a holy God, we should ask ourselves, what, what do we do? What do you do when those things are exposed? Right? In the same way that we all notice a rip in, a, in the fabric of our clothes at some point in time, whether, whether we notice a, a flagrant rip, a tiny pinhole, when somebody else points out uh, the, the, the rip in our clothing, when, when those things are exposed, how do you respond? Do you hide? Do you try to cover it up? Do you blame? Do you try to justify yourself and say it's fashion? No. When you're exposed, where do you turn? And this thief, when he's exposed, he chooses, rather than dying in his sin, he looks to the one who's dying for his sin. Fully exposed and nowhere else to turn, he looks to the one person who can save. And this should be our response as well. When, when we're exposed, when, when there's nowhere else for us to turn, we should look to Jesus and this is the criminal's realization. He knows that, that he has got nowhere else to turn. His, his hours, his, his, his life is down to minutes. And he knows that the only place he can turn for relief is to the king standing uh, hung up next to him. You see, this is the realization that, that the criminal wants us to make. This is the, the realization that Luke wants all of us to make. That, there's, that the only place we can turn for relief from sin is in Christ our king. So the criminal has made his realization. Now, what's the king's response? How does Christ respond to this criminal? Well, we see his response here in verse 43. He says to this criminal, he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Such a small statement, 11 words, but... Aren't these 11 words so good? They, they have the power to transform everything for us. And I just want to pause, linger over, over three phases, three phrases in this sentence. First, do you notice the word today? You see the word today? And it, Jesus tells this criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. And isn't that more than what this person has bargained for? Like this criminal says, Jesus remember me when you enter into your kingdom, you know, someday when your kingdom is fully realized. That might be, you know, years down. I'm not sure how this thing pans out, but one day when your kingdom comes, will you remember me? And you see Jesus reply. He says, not, not someday, this day, today, you will be with me in paradise. And isn't that amazing? This criminal who's hanging in the middle of his execution will be uh, sitting on the beach, drink in hand, soaking in the rays before the sun goes down. 
Right? He doesn't have to uh, do any type of penance or go through a 12-step program. He doesn't need to prove, he doesn't need to do anything or clean up his act in order to be right with God. Why? Because the work is finished. Christ has paid the price. And because of that, he is immediately set free from his sin, his guilt, and his shame. And that is the offer of the gospel. Do you see how, do you see the scandal of grace at work here? It's not just in, in, in God's giving, but it's also in the thief's asking that, that, that the criminal says, I don't, I don't deserve your grace, but, but remember me. Right? I, I don't deserve your, your salvation, but would you save me? And, and we see what Jesus says. He says, today you can experience relief. Today you can experience paradise. And, and and isn't that such a great invitation for us that the gospel offers us immediate relief from our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fears, our anxieties, and so much more. I mean, how many of us have tried to deal with, with guilt and shame on our own? And, and how closer are we to being set free from those things than the day that we began? Like Lady Macbeth in, in, in Shakespeare's play, we, we have blood on our hands and no matter how hard we scrub or try to work to remove it, we, we can't clean ourselves up on our own. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus comes to us and he says that the very moment that you, that you look to me for salvation is the very moment that you can be saved. The very second that you, that you recognize your need is the very second you can be set free from sin. And isn't that amazing? That becoming a Christian isn't like isn't like trying to get into grad school where you need a killer GPA and stellar references, right? Like this thief failed every single test. Nor nor is becoming a Christian like getting some type of spiritual do-over where God wipes the slate clean and says, here's your second chance. Because you and I both know full well that if we did, uh, that if we had a second chance, we would make the exact same mistakes we made in the first place. Like salvation is a gift of God that Jesus comes to us in the midst of our striving and says, it is is finished. It is finished. I've done the work for you. Today is the day that you can experience relief. Today is the day that you can experience forgiveness. Today is the day that you can experience grace. And friends, don't we want that? Don't don't you want to experience rest and relief from those things that you walked in here with today? Those things that you tuned in knowing that are that are sitting in the back of your mind and, and that you're going to return to when this, sermon, when this service ends. Jesus invites us to experience his rest, not someday, but today. Becoming a Christian is believing that promise, that, that we give Christ our sin, and in exchange, he gives us his grace, not someday, but today. See, that's just the first good word of Jesus' answer. He goes on. What, what does this thief get Today, he gets to be second in paradise. He gets to be in paradise. You see, the idea of paradise in the first century was a very loaded concept, but it's actually not too far off from the idea of paradise that pops into your head and mind. Uh, Paradise is that land of eternal bliss where we're not only insulated from the evil and brokenness of the world, but those things actually can't be found. And Jesus promises this criminal that that's where he's going to be. And and for all those who trust in Jesus, that's where he promises that we will be one day as well. Jesus says that's where we will be one day as well. And and don't you long for a place like that? I mean, hasn't this past year made us long for paradise even more? 
not just what we've seen in, in the culture and what's happening in the world outside of us, but even in our own bubbles of isolation and quarantine, don't we long for paradise? And this longing for this other world isn't put in us by Disney movies, right? This is the eternity that God has placed in all of our hearts. Uh, I'm just reminded of, of the words that our pastors gave at our Monday Thursday services yesterday, the quote from C.S. Lewis that if we find in ourselves a desire that this world can't satisfy, the only other conclusion is that we're made for another world. And paradise is that other world. And Jesus promises that for all who trust in him, that that is where we will ultimately be. We will be in paradise. You see, and as this thief can attest, paradise isn't a reward for a life well-lived. Paradise is given to those who know that they could never make it there on their own. Jesus promises for all who believe in him that they get to be in paradise. And I could go on talking more about paradise, like don't get me started. It just sounds so wonderful. But there's one more phrase in this passage that I want us to sit on. I don't want us to move too quickly by it because I think it's the most important part of this whole sentence. And it's this little phrase, with me. With me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This phrase is by far the best part of this entire sentence. Do you know why? Because when we, talk, when we talk about this idea of sin, of guilt, of shame, when you talk to counselors or therapists or when you read books on the subjects of sin or guilt or shame, one thing that you'll find again and again is that when it comes to being set free from those things, we need forgiveness, right? We, we need absolution. But more than forgiveness, we need, we need companionship. More than consolation, we need a person to come and meet us in the depths of our self-loathing, to look at us, to see us for who we really are. And rather than running away, repelled by what they see, they pack in, they pick us up, they embrace us, they tell us that they, that they love us, and they walk with us through the midst of all these things on the way out of it. See, more than just words of assurance, we need a person. And that's what Jesus offers us. More than just forgiveness, he offers us his very self. He offers to walk with us, to, to stick with us, to walk us through all of life's twists and turns, through, through life's highs and lows. And by his, by his spirit, Jesus promises to be with each and every one of us, even to the end of the age. There's no better gift that God could give to us than his very self. And if God does not hold back even his own son from us, will he not give to us all things? Better yet, will we not find in Jesus all things and more? Today, I'm almost certain that none of us in this room or watching online will die by crucifixion. At least I hope not. But I'm absolutely certain that all of us will die. You don't need to read a medical journal that will tell you that the, more, that the mortality rate is still one person for every one person. And when you take that journey that only you can take, the journey through the valley of the shadow of death, do you know that for those of us who trust in Jesus, we don't have to walk through that valley alone? That we have a shepherd who has traversed that valley. He's gone ahead of us. He walks alongside us. And he, he walks alongside us, not as some impotent comforter who can do nothing about our situation. He, he walks alongside us as that shepherd who knows the way out. 
He knows the twists and turns. He knows how to guide your steps so that you do not slip and stumble into despair. We have a shepherd who knows the valley and can walk with us through it. In fact, we have a shepherd who has taken the tool of his execution, the wood of his cross, and who's fashioned them into his rod and his staff that can bring us comfort that as we navigate life's dark valley, that we're headed to paradise with our good shepherd alongside us as we go. For those of us who trust in Jesus, we know that death has lost its sting, but on Friday on Skull Hill, it still hurts. The author of life has been put to death. God has been murdered, but so has our sin our guilt, and our shame. Things are dark now, darker than they've ever been. But friends, dawn is soon breaking. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the, the, the most precious gift, the most unsearchable of riches. Lord, that you did not hold him back from us, that you see us in our sin and in our shame, covered in our guilt, and you love us. You have met us in the depths in order to guide us out of it, to pick us up, to make us whole, to restore our souls. Help us to more deeply understand what that means. And, and Lord, help us to not be unchanged by what we've seen, by what we've heard. But Lord, help us to leave our guilt here and experience your grace today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.